Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast placed firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel and proud member of the Robots Radio podcast network. My name is Aramethius, and today we're discussing a people who have one of the most unique theological takes on Tamriel, alongside being one of the few who work with what is essentially magical ice. Today we're asking, who are the Skarl? Before we get to that, though, I want to say thank you to my latest patron, Tristan James, signed on recently. Thank you ever so much for your support, Tristan. I really, really appreciate that people take time to enjoy this podcast and support it. So thank you ever so much for your support, Tristan. I do hope you're enjoying the early access to the episodes and the access to the notes that the Patreon is getting you. If you're listening and you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty and sign up there for a per episode pledge and you can get exclusive access to my notes as well as early access to all the episodes that I produce. And or if you want to just support on a one-off basis, you can do that at Kofi. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Aramithius if you just want to drop me a one-off donation. Any and all support is really appreciated. Thank you ever so much, guys. I really appreciate that you guys want to support the work that I'm doing here. And sorry that it's taken quite so long to get these episodes out. And now we should probably get to the skull, although with the usual disclaimer to kick things off. Uh, this is my opinion on the skull and not the whole truth of the matter. I may have missed things or not have enough of a clear interpretation of what's going on here. You may have other ideas, and if so, I would absolutely love to hear them. Please do drop me an email at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com and I'd love to hear all of the things that you think about the skull and their perspectives. I should also point out that there is quite a limited amount of text for the skull even within the usual Elder Scrolls sources. There is mentions here and there and there's a fair amount of dialogue in Elder Scrolls 5 and the Elder Scrolls 3 or at least in the expansions for Dragonborn and Blood Moon specifically. Uh, but there's not an awful lot compared to a lot of the topics that I usually go on. So there's not an awful lot of information here and quite a bit of it is not from the Skull's own perspective. So the usual sort of cultural perspectives and the cultural imperialism, so to speak, come in here that this is not necessarily a totally true picture because we're coming and bringing things from a perspective outside of that of the skull. So bear that in mind for a lot of what we talk about here. So just in brief though, the skull are a tribe of Nords or Nord-ish people who are unique to the island of Solstheim, which is off the northeast coast of Skyrim. It's kind of in between the Skyrim Morrowind border. They haven't built any large settlements in what we've seen of them. Um, in fact, there's only really one village that we ever really see um, in what seems to be a lifestyle that is deliberately close to nature and is focused on being hunter-gatherers. They are also quite insular, or at least have been in some of their portrayals, although by the time of the fourth era, what we see in the Elder Scrolls V, they seem to have loosened up a bit, but they also may be dying out. That may be a matter of necessity more than anything else. 
Most particularly, the Skull have a very different pantheon compared to most other faiths on Tamriel, if you can really call that a pantheon at all. It's based on the worship of a figure called the Allmaker and, well, not much else. This has led some people to say that it's effectively monotheism in Tamriel, but I don't think that's entirely the case, and we'll get to precisely why later. Now, I mentioned that the Skull are a Nord-ish people. They certainly consider themselves a type of Nord, although they are fairly distinct from them culturally. Precisely when and how they splintered from the more mainstream Nords isn't clear, and we possibly have some contradictory information here. It, there's the Bloodscar Blade, which is present in a barrow in Soul's Time, and you can unearth that in both the Elder Scrolls III Blood Moon expansion and the Elder Scrolls V Dragonborn expansion. We, and, but... The Bloodskull Blade feels like it should have something to do with the Skull simply because of the name association, but we don't have an awful lot else to connect them to the Nords apart from that. There are a few nuggets here and there, but that's more significant for some things that will come later. Gratian's journal notes that there were are very few records of the Bloodskull clan, and they have a Draugr in the Bloodskull tomb, which indicates a link between the more usual Nordic culture at the time of the Dragon Cult, at least, which is and it's possible that the Bloodskull clan were the ancestors of the Skull, but we don't have any real confirmation of that. However, we do have some indication that the Skull came from Atmora, at least, rather than leaving Skyrim for Solf's time at a later date. The location of the Skull village, which didn't really move or grow in the 207 years between the events of Blood Moon and Dragonborn, is on the northeast of Solstheim, which isn't the most immediate place you'd settle if you were simply coming from Skyrim to the island, at least to me. However, if we apply this logic to the Bloodskull clan, their tomb is on the southwestern side, exactly where you'd expect parties to land if they were coming from Skyrim. So it's possible that if we are using locations as a guide, then the Skull aren't really related to the Bloodskull. However, we do have some other indications and connections between the Skull and the Dragon Cult specifically. The book The Guardian and the Traitor recounts a Skull legend of Mirak, which notes that the Skull remember, quote, an age long ago when dragons ruled over the whole world and were worshipped as gods by men. This would indicate that there is some cultural memory of the Dragon Cult among the Skull, and indeed some overlap in the events as both Draugr and Mirak are, present, are present on Solstheim. The legend also points to the Guardian, another dragon priest, who was appointed to rule over Solstheim after the traitor's disappearance, that's Mirak's disappearance. Given that, it feels like the Skull would have the same origin point as the Nords in terms of coming from Atmora, having a totemic-based religion based on a pantheon of divine animals uh, that then converge on dragon worship. Where they seem to differ is what happened afterwards, although there are some similarities given their origin point. And in fact, over the course of doing the research for this, I think I've come to the conclusion that the Skull and the Nords split apart sometime in the first era, in fairly early on in the first era. But I will get to that when we talk a bit more about what Stalrim is, because it's quite directly tied to that. And an awful lot of it is speculation on my part. So I don't really want to present that as a definite origin for the Skull in any real concrete way, because it's just my speculation, but I think it fits. So 
and bear with me for my answer on where I think the skull came from, but it doesn't fit quite here because it's speculation and it also links quite tightly to the nature of Stalrim and where that came from. And But anyway, getting back to where the Skull and the Nords diverged, from everything that we can tell, that's after the Dragon Cult. And so as a result of that, they would share the same origin in the old totemic faith that came from Atmora. That faith is described like this in the book The Dragon War, quote, In the Merithic era, when Isgrimor first set foot on Tamriel, his people brought with them a faith that worshipped animal gods. Certain scholars believe these primitive people actually worshipped the divines as we now know them, just in the form of these totem animals. They deified the hawk, wolf, snake, moth, owl, whale, bear, fox, and the dragon. So given that, we can assume that the Skull Faith had similar beginnings in the totemic faith of the old Nordic pantheon because they broke away later, from what we can tell. I think that this then evolved into a more animistic faith than the mainstream Nordic faith, which moves each of the totem animals into the figures of the Nordic pantheon. So the book Divines and the Nords explains where the Nords took this by saying this, quote, These animals, dragon, hawk, she-wolf, snake, moth, owl, whale, bear, and fox, seem to correspond to the eight divines plus Lorcan. Eventually, the animal totems transformed into the eight gods we worship today. We call them by their true names, Alduin, Kine, Mara, Dibella, Stun, Junal, Orki, and Shaw. So in the case of the skull, this transformation from totem animals to more normal divines, so to speak, or more normal gods, did not happen. There are some similarities between the Nords and the Scar, particularly when it comes to the dragons being bad, which I'd personally put down to residual memories of the dragon cult, which we will come back to and discuss a little bit later. But in the case of the Scar overall, the evolution seems to go the other way around. Instead of the animals becoming representations of more abstract and personified deities, the Scar deified the natural phenomena around them that was linked to those animal totems or potentially the source for them it's a bit tricky to quite say what came first but or at the very least they spiritualized it if we go with michael kirkbride's word on the matter in a forum post kirkbride claims that quote the skull are animistic not monotheistic now it's not immediately apparent what this means i at was inclined to disagree with it at first, although I've never really thought of the Skull as monotheistic personally, but there's some interesting edges that, but there is actually some mileage to that, particularly in some edges to a quote from Storm Cragstrider in Dragonborn, quote, The Allmaker is the maker of all things, and it is from the Allmaker that life flows like a great river. As all rivers must return to the sea, so all life returns in time to the Allmaker. The same character also points out that the secrets of the Skull that Hermaeus Mora is trying to steal in the Dragonborn DLC are basically ways to interact with the natural world, like the wind and the sky and stuff. With the attitude that all natural things come from the Allmaker, the Skull are communing with the Divine when they interact with the natural world. Now that is close to animism, which is the belief that natural phenomena all have a spiritual component or have souls or something of that nature. 
there would be little distinction between the Allmaker and the natural world in that case, which is very close to animism. That all life comes from the Allmaker means that the natural world is possessed of a part of the Allmaker and is has a divine component and is then shaped by it, but also distinct from the Allmaker, which is a form of animism, that the world itself is possessed of a spiritual component and souls and spirits and so on, while still owing all of its life, all of its being, all of its shape to the Allmaker. Now, that leads to some interesting assumptions about how the world works. The Skull don't differentiate between people, animals, and other things in quite the same way as other folk. For them, souls are more sort of stuff-like than we typically think of the term. Everything becomes spirit in that case if it's all linked to talking to the wind and the trees and the animals and people and so on. And so interacting with the wind and the earth is automatically interacting with the spiritual. It infuses everything they do. I'd imagine that even something as banal as having crumpets and tea with a friend could have a spiritual component for the skull. This pervasive animism has big implications for how the Skulls see the world, and in particular, the afterlife. The book Children of the Allmaker, which is written by a Nord and so may have both some misunderstandings of the Skull culture and some shared background that could both make it easier for the author to understand and have some assumptions not mentioned in the text, puts it like this, quote, For the skull, the Allmaker is the source of all life and all creation. When a creature dies, its spirit returns to the Allmaker, who shapes it into something new and returns it to Mundus. The concept of death as an ending to life is unknown to the skull. Rather, death is seen as simply the beginning of the next stage of an endless journey. At a first glance, this also feels quite similar to how the Argonians see the, their relationship to the Hist, particularly if you take some of Alandro Saul's ancient tales of the Dwemer at their word, which is generally a really bad idea, so bear with me. But that particular work has a tale where there's the quote that the Hist are where Argonians come from and where they are going. Now, it's going to be more complicated than that because Alandro Saul doesn't understand much, but that's sort of a good place to start. However, the hist in general are a conduit for a consciousness and experiences that can be reformed as an Argonian as part of the overall Argonian hist relationship and such. So there is that sort of flow of awareness, consciousness, spirit between Argonian and hist in a cycle that's quite similar to how all of life comes from the Ormaker and then goes back to the Ormaker and sort of ebbs and flows and stuff. But what the Skull believe is a little different. It's a more universal thing that all things have a spirit uh, that is then moulded into something else upon death. It's not precisely what the Argonians believe, but it's all closer to what Benedict Spinoza proposed as to how substance works in his key work, Ethics. Now, it's trying to do an awful lot of heavy lifting, that particular book, setting out how the whole universe works and all, and all sorts in quite mathematical and logical terms. But in brief, Ethics proposes that all the universe is one substance, and substance here being defined as, quote, that which is in itself and is conceived through itself, in other words, that of which a conception can be formed independently of any other conception. With, with things 
fashioned into different modes of that one substance. Modes here being, quote, the modifications of substance or that which exists in and is conceived through something other than itself. So for the skull, all souls and potentially all of existence whatsoever have its source and its definition in the ore maker, which is then fashioned through the process of existence itself by the ore maker. So constantly changing, but never really going away. That one of the consequences of Spinoza's work is the idea that substance is eternal in itself. It just gets keeps on getting shaped and reformed and remade into other stuff. So that's kind of what the skull are going at here, that there is soul matter, there is spirit matter that the ore maker then shapes into discrete objects and things and animals and plants and people and all of the stuff of reality. And seeing as we've started to bring him up, it's probably about time to discuss the ore maker directly. Now, first off, I'm not totally sure that the evolution that I've talked about of moving from the totem spirits and animals and so on of the ancient Nordic pantheon to the Ormaker is absolutely the case. There's a bit of a leap from the ancient pantheon to the Ormaker, which quite a few folk claim to be monotheism for the Elder Scrolls. Most particularly, it's a bit odd that there's the combining of several disparate entities with control over more limited purviews into a handful of entities with more wide-reaching authority, or maybe influence is a better word here than authority. I'm not sure authority is quite the right word but that sort of evolution does sort of happen from what we see in this world's history but it's a little difficult to justify within the context of the Elder Scrolls. The story of Avar Stonesinger links the various aspects of the natural world to the Allmaker quite directly with the words of the adversary here which is a bit weird but anyway there's this quote you of the skull have grown fat and lazy. I have stolen the gifts of your Allmaker. I have stolen the oceans, so you will forever know thirst. I have stolen the lands and the trees and the sun, so your crops will wither and die. I have stolen the beasts, so that you will go hungry. And I have stolen the winds, so you will live without the spirit of the Allmaker. There are also some notes of the mainstream Nordic pantheon here and that of Yahweh from the Torah, where the word for spirit in the sense of the spirit of God is sometimes expressed as breath or wind. The Hebrew word is ruach or something like that. My pronunciation is terrible, which conflates spirit with both breath and wind in the same way as the above passage. It also links to the Nordic belief uh, that links to Kine, uh, the goddess of the wind, and the head of the Nordic pantheon as the thing that created the Nords. Now, these sorts of little hints get a whole bunch of speculation in various corners of the law community about who the Allmaker is. However, if we are prepared to go into unlicensed texts, there's a bunch of even bigger hints and outright statements that um, come from the seven fights of the old Dudaga. Most particularly, there is this, quote, he was the Akatusk, a somewhat foreign spirit, yeah right, from the Totem Wars, and known mainly in the tongue of men as the enemy brother of Shaw. And he said, look on them, my friends, and see how the North has gone insane with the beating and beating of the Doom Drum, whose father they full talk call their Allmaker. Now the Doom Drum is the key here, which is a sobriquet of Lokan. It's also a fit because Lokan was the one who planned and built the mortal plane, and in a way made everything. So... He's kind of the all-maker in that sense. However, 
that's not quite getting us to the ore maker and for that we need to go back to the monomyth because the doom drum is not the ore maker the father of the doom drum is the ore maker this particular quote from the monomyth tells us who that is quote in most cultures, Anuiel is honoured for his part of the interplay that creates the world, but Sithis is held in highest esteem because he's the one that causes the reaction. Sithis is thus the original creator, an entity who intrinsically causes change without design. Even the Hist acknowledge this being. This would put Sithis or Padme in the position of the Ormaker, which is about as definite as we can get. There is a statement that Sithis begat Lorcan from the book Sithis, while the monomyth claims that Padme is Lorcan's father. This puts the Scar in a similar position to the Argonians, although the act of creation and the individual shapes are seemingly more important to the Scar than they are to the Argonians, who put more of an emphasis on the overall cycle of creation and just returning to the state of constant change that is Sithis, so to speak. Where the skull really differ is not in the reverence of Sithis as the Allmaker, but how their general idea of what the other spirits are. Other faiths, particularly those of a more old Merry inclination, indicate that the more general spirits became the Elnafei and the laws of nature in order to survive in the limited world of Mundus. They do not link those spirits to Lorcan in any real way, whereas the Skarl claim they are part of the same substance as Lorcan. It's certainly an interesting take on supernatural genealogy in the Arabis. Even with the Argonians having a similar attitude to Sithis, the aspects of Sithis that we see in the events of the Elder Scrolls Online don't really seem to have dominion over any aspect of nature in the same way as it's implied that the Allmaker does. The Allmaker is also, as I mentioned earlier, often claimed to be monotheism in Tamriel. This isn't quite the case, although I can see why people would think that, particularly given how we've already talked about the parallels with Spinoza and that kind of attitude. However, most people's perspectives don't tend to get that deep. They just look at the worship of a single god and then just take it from there, oh, it's monotheism. However, the Skull do appear to have something that makes them closer to monolatry, which is the worship of one god, but it, that acknowledges the existence of more than one, or maybe dualism, so to speak. They acknowledge one other being and force in their cosmology, really, which is generally dubbed the Adversary. The adversary is the devil figure of the Scarf faith and looks to take things away from the skull. You'll also see several questions about who precisely the adversary is in various places online, but I think it's fairly cut and dried, although there is one exception which we'll get to. The story of Avar Stonesinger points to the adversary as formulations of the Akka spirit. In particular, the text says this, quote, the adversary has many aspects. He appears in the unholy beasts and the uncurable plague. At the end of seasons, we will know him as Thartag, the world devourer. But in these ages, he came to be known as the greedy man. Now, there's a whole bunch of bits in there that are quite interesting, which we will unpack. But here we want to look at Thartag, the world devourer. Now, that sounds incredibly like Alduin. And it also notes later on that the Falmer are servants of the adversary. And Falmer, at least when they were a bit more compassmentous than they are in the fourth era, were very much into Oriel worship. So worship of the time god in its, in its elven form. 
These are sort of little pointers towards the Acker variants being the adversary in various ways, uh, particularly as the Time God is also one of the best examples of a deity with many aspects, because there's Akatosh, there's Alduin, there's Oriel, there's probably some others I'm forgetting, there's Akha, there's Alkosh, there's all of that lot, so they are incredibly splintered. But I would also be remiss if I didn't point out that the Seven Fikes does also have some contradictory evidence that seems to indicate that the greedy man could be Lokan. Maybe. The text in question has a lot going on, and I think I'd probably just present it in all its messiness. From fight one of the Seven Fights, we have this, quote, Oh crap, the greedy man said. He knows my bargain with the King of Leapers. I'd better hide under my mountain. But he thought and said all of this too fast, and without thinking, hid under his mountain, even though its base had already been eaten, and so it wasn't all still there. This is how the greedy man became trapped both in and outside of Kalpas. Now, the greedy man hiding under the mountain sounds an awful lot like Lokan's heart being put under Red Mountain, which would make the greedy man Lokan. However, being both in and out of Kalpas also feels a little Lokanic. While he's never described as such, having his heart on Mundus and the rest of him possibly somewhere else, whether the moons are part of Mundus is something I discussed a while back when I covered the moons, uh, but that does feel like a possible way of looking at what happened to him. He's also described as standing on top of Red Mountain, which is linked to Lokan quite explicitly. Although the way that the Greedy Man's Mountain being described here as not being all there does put me in mind of Snow Throat, the throat of the world, um, that's not quite right because the top of Snow Throat not being all there is usually the thing that's pointed out rather than the base of the mountain. And so to cap it all off as well, both Red Mountain and Throat Mountain are mentioned by name in the seven fights but neither are named in the passage we've just been through so it's really not totally clear it's a bit of an uncertain mess but i get the feeling that the seven fights wants us to think that the greedy man is lokan from all this although that does contradict most other things that we hear about the greedy man's identity the only real explanation I can think of is that these tales are possibly Nordic in origin rather than Skarl. We don't get an author for the Seven Fights, but they do put the Nords front and centre while only tangentially referring to the Skarl. If that's the case, they could be getting some details wrong of how the Skarl actually perceive their deities. Uh, I'm not totally sure about that, but it could be a reason why the Greedy Man is presented in this way. You'll note that I've been conflating the greedy man and the adversary, which the quote from Avar Stonesinger somewhat goes against by saying that the adversary has many aspects. Part of this reminds me of how the serpent and the devil are related in Paradise Lost, but I'm also reminded of the more general presentation of things in the Garden of Eden narrative in Genesis chapter 3 and the presentation of Satan more generally in the Bible. The serpent who tempts Eve isn't identified with Satan in any way in that text. And Satan in the book of Job is more a spirit acting under God's authority than what we in the English speaking world tend to think of when we say devil. There are other presentations in the books of the prophets and the law that puts it at odds with what God and the Israelites are doing and working against them. 
but without much consistent characterization. Where this comes into Paradise Lost and so on is that it isn't the serpent itself who tempts Eve with the fruit in the garden, according to Milton, but instead it's Satan dwelling in the mind of the serpent. I think it's possibly a similar thing happening with the greedy man. It isn't the man himself that's the problem, but the force of the adversary within him that makes him bad and an avatar of all things that are bad. Now, whether this force is an actual thing in and of itself, again, I'm not clear. You're probably sick of hearing me say that by now. Or whether the other possibility there is that adversary is a designation that is a title rather than a particular being. So something like Sharmat as a stand-in for enemy of the Dunmer, as I've discussed before. There certainly seems to be an odd mix of entities in the adversary set. Uh, we have the following things from Avar's tale. We have Unholy Beasts, we have the Incurable Plague, we have Thartarg the World Devourer, and we have the Greedy Man. These do make a couple of my Daedra senses tingle. The idea of unholy beasts reminds me of Hercene in his role as the father of man-beasts, while the incurable plague is definitely Periite's domain of plague and disease. Thartag the World Devourer is the big obvious one, as Alduin we've already mentioned, and then we have the greedy man. I was quite curious about this because the more general narratives consistently cast the adversary on the Anuic side of the Anu-Padme divide, particularly if we think about Sithis as the Ormaker, and then it groups the Akka spirit in with a bunch of Daedra. They are possibly the only group in Tamriel to do this, as far as I can tell. Even the Khajiit, who are a bit more liminal and fluid when it comes to thinking about their gods, broadly speaking, keep the Aedra-Daedra divide intact ish. I mean, Lokage is the wild card there, but that's the only real difference that straddles the line. And Namira, I suppose, but they're still distinct things in terms of Adra and Daedra. You don't get Adra being confused for the ones in the second litter. But anyway, so either the Skull are somehow grouping things that are not of the Allmaker altogether in a very, very arbitrary way, or there's something else going on. I think that the most likely thing for this is that the adversary is literally just that, a thing that opposes the Skull. It's just an opponent, and as such can change from time to time. So adversary is a title that is bestowed rather than a physical entity or a metaphysical entity in any way. So most of the Daedra will probably make it into that list at some point or another over time. We have this line from Wolf Wildblood in the Dragonborn expansion of Skyrim talking about weirbears, quote, Twisted beasts, a curse of Hercene. True bears are noble and great creatures of the wild, but the Daedra have no skill for creation, and so they defile the old maker's workings. This backs up some of the things that we hear elsewhere that the Daedra can only change and can't create, and so they will ultimately just twist the Allmaker's workings or twist the created order. The text that mentions that Daedra can only change isn't particularly Allmaker-focused, but... Elsewhere, we have Wolf saying that the Skull way is intended to respect everything and not take more than is necessary because everything is part of the Allmaker's creation. And so the warping of that creation by the Daedra would quite naturally earn their ire, I think. Uh, the only exception that I could possibly see would be Periite and Namira, as they represent natural processes to some degree, 
with periite being disease and Namira being decay. But periite is already on that list, so I don't think that those would make it out of being considered poorly by the skull because disease and decay can be bad things, and so the skull will probably keep thinking of them as bad things. And one of the reasons that the Skull have remained so distinct from the rest of the Nords is that they have remained isolated so consistently and effectively. As a result, they've developed their own culture that's focused on their own ways with their own traditions and their own secrets. Uh, this is likely due to the philosophy of non-interference with the world that we've just spoken about, that they should only leave a small a mark on the world as they possibly can. Now, this is an overflow of their religious outlook, which implies a philosophy of non-interference with the natural world as far as is possible, which is similar to some forms of Buddhism that emphasise consuming as little life as possible. If you go into some of the more obscure sects in Buddhism, I'm sure I remember hearing somewhere of some that say you shouldn't really walk very much because in doing so you could be crushing insects underneath your feet, that sort of thing. We're looking at some very, very micro ways of thinking we mustn't interact with the world, which is part of the way that the Skull think. That in Dragonborn expansion, we also have Wolf Wildblood saying this, quote, we take only what we need, and so we preserve the oneness with the land. And he also elaborates on what that means with this, quote, We believe that all creatures have a right to live as they will, and when we take what we need from them, we thank the beasts for its gifts. The less we disturb the land and the beasts within it, the more we respect the wishes of the Allmaker. Now, this worldview will very much tend to lend itself towards isolationism. Storn Cragstrider notes that the island of Solstheim was given to them by the Allmaker, and so they have little need to go anywhere other than what they've already been given and just to use what they've already got. The story of Avar Stonesinger has this to say as well, which I think implies something similar when the title character returns the gift of the beasts. Quote, you have returned the gift of the beasts. Once again, the good beasts will feed the skull when they are hungry, clothe them when they are cold, and protect them in times of need. Now, while this is very obviously an allegorical tale, it feels like it's illustrative of how the skulls see things. The beasts aren't being killed for their furs and their meat, but they are giving what they have as a gift to the skull. Now, this attitude of not taking more than they need could also be the reason that they've not expanded much beyond the single village they have on Solstheim. Uh, the time between Blood Moon and Dragonborn does in some ways even show them being somewhat in decline. The village had a rough militia in Blood Moon, but that's not much more than a few hunters in Dragonborn, and they're not even really explicitly soldiers. You can get into questions of how far the games represent the law in this, and there is definitely that argument to be made, I think. But there is also a note in the book Children of the Allmaker that the Skull are dwindling, in the book's words, because of this, quote, The ash fall from Vardenfell has taken its toll on the plants and animals upon which the Skull depend for their survival, and life is now a struggle for all who call Solstheim home. And so, yes, they are declining because they can't get as much food, they can't get as much in the way of clothing from the animals because the animals have been dying off. And so without the drive to expand and move to somewhere else, which they absolutely don't have, then the scar will dwindle over time as the things that they depend on will 
shrink and decline. And that's kind of a shame because they will take their unique perspectives with them if they disappear. And one in particular that leads into some more practical stuff is the mystery of Stalrim, which is basically some kind of divinely crystallized ice is the way they put it. Some people say it's crystallized by the gods. Others say that it's a naturally occurring material, but it's a material that can be worked into fantastical weapons and armor and that sort of thing. Now, so the Skull consider Stalrim to be a holy material according to several pieces of dialogue when we interact with the Skull. Uh, in Blood Moon, the character Graring says this, The Skull consider the Stalrim to be holy. During the Great War with the Dark Elves, many heroes fell in battle. Some could not be returned to Skyrim and were buried here. That is Solstheim. Great magics were worked on their tombs to protect their belongings from grave robbers and their corpses from worse things. Energy was drawn from the land itself and our heroes were encased in tombs of ice. That ice is Stalrim. Now this suggests that the Skull had some part to play in the War of Succession where the Nords took over and then lost portions of what would become Morrowind which put them involved in a war in 461 or so of the First Era. It's interesting that the Skull are rapidly dropped from the dialogue that we've just been through. Um, and after that first line aren't really taken into account. That's possibly because they weren't the Skull at the time, is my logic to this. That's one possible way of explaining it. It feels like a bit of a reach, but I think it's possible that the original Skull was simply the tomb guardians of the heroes who fell on Sol's time, and they are the descendants of the original tomb builders. We know from various bits of dialogue in the Elder Scrolls 3 and 5 that they have a tradition that knows how to work Starrim, so maybe they come from the people who created it. However, there's no real evidence of that, uh, I have to say. That's just me kind of speculating on it because we don't really have a definite origin for the skull. And it just made my ears prick up that they were involved in the creation of Stalrim somehow and that this happened when the Nords were withdrawing from their holdings around Morrowind as the Kaima and the Dunmer fought them off. But anyway, the origins of the Skull, whatever they were, have been lost to time, basically. In the Third Era, Graring was made an outcast for trying to work Stalrim, which suggests that a taboo has developed around it to a degree. However, I'm not so sure that it was a taboo around the material itself, uh, more in its application. Now, Graring and the folks who were followed with him were cast out because they mined Stalrim from unearthed tombs. And that possibly puts them in the line for desecrating burials and so on, rather than just working the material. If someone already had some Stalrim, then I'm not sure that they would have necessarily been ostracised by the Skull for just working it, because the tradition of working Stalrim is something that the Skull have throughout their history, so far as we know. So... It just could be what they're doing with this particular Stalrim and they are therefore and therefore just objecting to its use for as taking it from the tombs. So I'm not sure that the Skull would object so much to the working of existing Stalrim as separate from the tombs. However, if they 
ever had the knowledge of creating it. The skull we encounter don't know how to do so as far as we can tell. I think most pointedly, as far as we can tell, it's not one of the secrets that Hermaeus Mora wants to steal from the skull. So that knowledge is either lost or it was never theirs to begin with. I like to think that they knew once, but that's mostly because the creation of Star Rim itself feels like a nice origin point, a good thematic link to the time of the Skull becoming a separate people, where we otherwise have very little idea of where they came from. But that could just be me wanting answers where there are none. And with that possible origin of the Skull thought about and discussed and looping us back into the beginning of the episode, that is everything I have to say on the skull for now. I do hope you've enjoyed this journey through this reclusive and little understood and little studied people of Sol's time. It's been a real eye-opener for me just getting into the guts of what little we have of them and just the general problems around, of historiography around them even so far as that is a thing in the Elder Scrolls. But next time we are looking at a people who will possibly have even less going on for about them but mostly because they've been invading and not really leaving much in the way of records and generally not been that keen to be talked to we are talking about people who have been laying siege and raiding and all sorts to Somerset for a good number of centuries and even claim to be the original people from Somerset. Well, not the original people from Somerset, the original people from Aldmeris. But next time we will be asking, what are the Marama? And until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and hosted by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Hey, I'm Tom. And I'm Stuart. And we're from the Dungeons & Dragons Lorecast. We talk about all things connected to D&D lore. And... We're on the Robots Radio Network, so if you're into Dungeons and Dragons or you're into lore, then come check us out. You can find us on any podcatcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get podcasts. Roll more dice. That's the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. Do you love the Mass Effect series, and are you looking to learn even more about Mass Effect? The things that you didn't even know that you didn't know? Well, this is your host, Tom, or Robots, and me and my co-host N7 Legend do a show called the Mass Effect Lorecast. It is available on whatever podcatcher you're listening to this right now. We also do it live on twitch.tv slash robotsradio, 1030 Eastern, 730 Pacific on Sunday nights. So go look it up right now, the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to have you join us.